welcome to Spiritual Wanderlust, where we explore our interior life in search of the sacred. Many of us will travel the whole world to find ourselves, but here we'll follow those longings within to our spiritual and emotional landscapes. In each episode, we'll talk with inspiring guests, contemplative teachers, embodiment experts, neuropsychologists, and mystics. With a blend of ancient wisdom and modern science, along with a healthy dash of mischief, we'll deep dive into divine intimacy and what it means to be whole. I'm your host, Kelly Deutsch. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Spiritual Wanderlust podcast. I am Kelly Deutsch, and today I am joined by a very special guest who is one of the most popular spiritual writers today, Father Ronald Rollheiser. Father Ron is a professor, a retreat leader, an award-winning author, and serves as the president of the Oblate School of Theology. Uh, one reason why his writings are so popular is that he's able to speak in a very human language, which I deeply appreciate. Um, I find one of the greatest marks of wisdom is to be able to speak deep truths very plainly, which Father Ron excels at. His books include The Holy Longing, Guidelines for Christian Spirituality, The Restless Heart, Finding Our Spiritual Home in Times of Loneliness, Sacred Fire, A Vision for Deeper Human and Christian Maturity, and many more. Today, Father Ron and I are going to be deep diving into mysticism, including longing, divine union, suffering, and lots of other exciting topics. So Father Ron, I'm very excited to have you with us. Good to be here. Thanks, Kelly. Yes, absolutely. I wanted to start today just by asking, you've been talking about these topics of spirituality and mysticism for over 40 years. How did you first encounter the mystical path? Was it through the writings of mystics? Was it your own experience, something else? Well, you know, it's interesting, Kelly, that's right, 40 years, <laughs> I'm old, so it was, it, um, I was in my 30s before I got interested in mysticism. You know, as a, as a, a seminarian, and in my initial field of theology, I wasn't interested in it. I somehow identified with something more exotic, you know, and, and whenever I tried to read a mystic like John of the Cross, I couldn't read him. Um, and at, at one stage, I was teaching a course in Edmonton on religious experience, and ironically, ran into a Methodist writer, um, Langdon Gilkey, was talking about how our society is undergoing a collective dark night of the soul. I thought, I want to find out what that is. Hmm. <laughs> and so then I, I, I started seriously getting into John of the Cross as the first mystic. Um, and, and from there on, um, it, it's been a love affair. You know, that's just that I kind of did one by one. I did John of the Cross, got into the Teresas and some of the others and um, uh, contemporary mystics, and so on, but it's just a wealth. It's a gold mine of um, religious wealth that um, really has been left unexplored, even in Catholic circles. It's making a comeback now. But when I was at the seminary in theology, we didn't study the mystics. You might study them at formation houses, and Protestant seminaries didn't study them at all. Mm -hmm. You know, and all of a sudden realized there's this deep well of incredible wisdom, and so on. Um, and since then, like people like John of the Cross have become the most deeply influential in my spirituality and theology. Yeah, he's quite the one to start with. <laughs> like... Well, I was very lucky. I got a, a six-week major research course by Michael Buckley, mm. University of San Francisco, and I went there in summer of 76, and he just led us through John of the Cross line by line the greatest course I've ever taken in my life, you know, so. Wow, yeah, that sounds incredible. Cause I remember, I mean, I remember when I was like 16 thinking mystics are important. I'm not quite sure like what it is about them. And I tried picking up, you know, Teresa of Avila's Interior okay. Castle and I was reading it as, you know, the 16 year old who's getting yeah. excited about my faith. But, you know, I was like, I'm pretty sure I'm, I'm missing some things here, yeah. Yeah. but it is really interesting. Um, that wouldn't be the place to start. If yeah. you know, honestly, if somebody started say, start with Teresa of Lisieux, start with the other Teresa, mm -hmm. and then she's kind of the Anne Frank of the spiritual life. You can read her, but Teresa, John, you almost need to take a course on those people. You know. Yes, yes, I know. We're gonna have to offer one of those later because they they are so rich and deep. But I think you know now that I've studied theology and have done things, it makes a lot more sense, like their worldview, their terminology. But at the beginning, you're just like ah. <laughs> Like, there's a lot happening here. I don't even know. Um, 
For those who are listening who aren't familiar with mysticism, especially Christian mysticism, how would you define it? Okay, well, you know, and I may be um, a confederate voice here, you know. See, there's there's two, um, um, and I'm going to define it the way, you know, later on in September, I'm going to give a talk at Ruth Burroughs. Mm -hmm. And Ruth Burroughs, I'm using her, um, and she's also uh, supported by the great spiritual writer at time, Bernie McGinn. Mm. See, a lot of people consider mysticism something extraordinary, an extraordinary experience where you have a vision, mm -hmm. um, just some kind of extraordinary ecstatic experience. Um, and mysticism can be that. There are mystics, you know, Julian of Norwich, the famous mystics. Um, but by and large, mysticism, everybody can experience mysticism. So Ruth Burroughs would simply say mysticism is... Uh, when, when, when you, you, you touch a moment of clarity inside of yourself, hmm. uh, where there's just no filters, you know, like, let me give you an example. She, you know, she was 18 years old. I'm going to use that in the talk. So, um, and she was a high school girl in, in England and, hmm. and a bit featherheaded by her own. You know, she wasn't very serious religiously. And they were on a retreat for graduation. And she hmm. and this other girl, girl were fooling around and the sisters pulled them out. And they said, no, when... When we're in conference, you have to be in chapel. And they were, so she'd have to sit in chapel for hours with the sister chaperoning her. And first, though, they were passing notes and humoring. But she said, at a certain moment, she said, at a moment of clarity. Not, not just, I knew who I was. I knew who God was. I knew, I just did just a moment of absolute clarity and changed her life. Mm. So Burroughs, and that's my definition, it's, it's being touched mm. for real in a way that's deeper than words, deeper than thought, deeper than he's just... Where at a certain point, you just know something, mm -hmm. you know, and see, we all have mystical experience. We aren't all mystics. The mystics can give articulation to it. But see, mm -hmm. so there's two kinds that there can be mystics of extraordinary experience. You know, mm -hmm. they have visions, they have ecstasies, they get the stigmata and so on. That's rare. There are people like that. Um, but um, most mystics, um, they're human, they're ordinary, they have deep moments of clarity in which they just know. Mm -hmm. you know? Yes, I, I love that sense of unknowing. And I remember when I first heard of that book, you know, Cloud of Unknowing, that made no, no sense to me whatsoever. No. But I feel like it has something to do with that sense of, you know that you know that you know, and no. you can't really necessarily put it into words, but yeah. there's something deep and anchored and rooted in, yeah. in that experience. See, because usually we think we know, but we don't, you know, most of the time, we're thinking through filters and ideologies. If someone says to you, what do you really believe on anything? Sometimes it's, you don't even know, you know, you think, you know, uh, uh, I always say like, for instance, a few, a couple of years ago when that movie came out, The Passion of the Christ, and mm -hmm. there was so much for against it. I said, I was convinced that nobody ever watched the movie. We watched each other watch the movie. <laughs> and, and then we react, you know, because normally we're reacting to ideology, to everything, to, to our wounds and so on. That we, we, but mysticism, it's a moment of clarity. You just know who you are, what reality is. Um, that's a mystical moment. Yeah. See, then a mystically driven life is that you live out of that. Mm. You know? See, then you don't live out of ideology. You don't live out of, you know, false selves or ego. Or you live out of, this is, this is who I am. Yeah. Talk to me a little more about that. What does that look like to live out of that sense of deep knowing or those moments of clarity? What does that look like? Okay, let, let me risk it this way. Uh, you know, I know we, we have three faculties. And, you know, and that's been since today, they say we have your head, your heart and your gut. Mm -hmm. Okay, and people kind of know what the head is, and people kind of know what the heart is. But I don't think we even get what the gut is. Mm. Okay. Um, okay, your head is your thought, okay? Your heart is your feelings, your affectivity, but notice they're not the deep part. You mm. think with your head, you feel with your heart, but who's the you? Who's sitting behind there? See, mm -hmm. and that's the gut. Mm. See, with, with your gut, you don't, your head tells you what you think is wise. Your heart tells you what, what you'd like to do. And uh, your gut tells you what you have to do. I say it's your ought center, you know, I have to do this, um, as opposed to I want to do this, I think it's smart to do this, um, uh, you know, and see, and, and so with the great mystics, the Carmelite tradition, like John of the Cross, Teresa, it's what, 
they don't say, what do you have to do? Don't ask yourself what you want to do. Don't ask yourself what you think is smart to do. Just, Kelly, what do you have to do? See, mm -hmm. that's your gut. See, and that's your truer center, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's not that your head and heart aren't important, but notice they aren't the deep part of you. Mm -hmm. You it's are not thinking. An external should either. It's not like I have to do this because, you know, you know somebody's no, telling me. Really, from, from your deep side, you know, mm -hmm. see, and that's the voice of God. That's the voice of reality inside of you, you know? Mm -hmm. um, let, let me give you an example that I use. You know, Peter, when Peter's before Jesus, Right after Jesus has uh, given the bread of life discourse in John, and he says, you know, uh, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you won't have life in me. And John said, they all walked away. Mm -hmm. He said, this is intolerable language. We can't hear this. And Jesus turns to Peter and said, do you want to walk away too? And Peter said, we'd like to. He said, we have no other place to go. But then he says this, but besides, we know that you have the words of eternal life. That's a very important text. At that moment, Peter's head isn't in it, his heart isn't in it, but a deeper part of him is in it. He's telling mm -hmm. Jesus, you sound like death, you feel like death, except we know, except we know this is truth, this, you know. And see, that's a mystically driven life. You know, like mm -hmm. for instance, in any marriage or any commitment, there's going to be times when your head isn't in it, your heart isn't in it. Mm -hmm. You can say, I need to stay here. Um, this is where truth is, see. That that's that's that that's mysticism, mm -hmm. you know, as Ruth Burroughs defines it. So that you just know. See, when when Peter's doing that, he's a mystic. Mm -hmm. He's saying <laughs> everything says I should be out of here, except I know at a deep level this is going to bring me life. Yes, this is going to bring me life. I feel like a lot of people today call that either like your body's wisdom or even intuition, like just that deeper sense that you you know this is what you have to do, yeah. um, and it's so helpful when you are discerning big decisions or you know life changes or whatever when when something deep down even if you know yeah. whatever it might be i could go over here and i could get paid less and if i go over here you know maybe i get paid more but yeah. something in me even though my head can recognize you know the pros and cons of each something in me is like <sighs> like but no kelly you're gonna see your, your in, intuition is very close to that Mm -hmm. See, the intuitive sense, notice the intuitive sense, it's not your head or your heart. Mm -hmm. That's another part of you. And that runs very close. Mm. You know, you just have a, a sense. Mm -hmm. And you know, that, uh, um, you know, that I need to do this. You know, are you familiar with the poet Rainer Marie Rilke? The yes. I remember his letters to the young poet. Mm -hmm. At one point, this guy asked him, what should I do? And Rilke, this could have been John of the Cross giving advice. He said, Go into the stillest hour of your night and ask yourself, what do I have to do? What do I have to do here? You know, mm -hmm. see, and it's not so much what society wants, or your parents want or whatever. It's just, you know, to get to who is the true you, you know, that's mm -hmm. your gut. That's your soul, um, you know, telling you, I need to do this. Yes. That's Peter before Jesus saying, everything says you should walk away, except I know I need to stay here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. I know, and I love that. Um, to me, that's a very easy way to explain Ignatian discernment, you know, where it's like sink down into your gut or, you know, if you want into your body, wherever it is, and just feel whether or not that one decision feels more spacious and whole and, you know, or do you feel like cramped and anxious and, you know, like being able to um, sink down deep beneath the head that rationalizes like, but this would be, and what over here option B, you know, and, or, or the heart. So yeah. That's... Now Kelly, can I use a colorful word? Sure. Okay. I can give you another example. You know, Daniel Berrigan, the great maverick Jesuit. Mm -hmm. And I remember seeing this interview on television. I about jumped out of my chair. You know, I was a young priest. And so anyway, this interview says, father says, where, where does your faith reside? Is your faith in your head or your heart? And Berrigan says, he said, Faith is rarely where your head is at. He said, it's even less rarely where your heart is at. He said, faith is where your ass is at. And he says, I'm not trying to be cute. He said, like, what are your commitments? You know, where are you sitting? He says, anybody in any commitment knows there's times your head isn't in it, your heart isn't in it. You stay in it. Why? Because mm -hmm. you realize at a different level, you know, I know it's a colorful word, but kind of nails it. Yeah. You know? Yeah, absolutely. I'm curious too. So the podcast name is Spiritual Wanderlust, and I feel like that aligns very well with your book, Holy Longing. Yeah. And I'm curious how longings 
tie into all of this and um like where do these longings come from and what's what's their point why do we have this kind of existential restlessness and wanderlust well kelly that that is not just the holy longing that's the deep motif in all of my writings you mm-hmm, know mm-hmm. and ultimately you know the articulation comes from augustine mm. i think one of the great lines <clears throat> spiritual lines ever written was saint augustine he begins his confession with the lines You've made us for yourself, Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. So it basically, as Karl Rahner, who's incidentally, today we're celebrating the anniversary of the death of Karl Rahner, but he says, um, there is no finished symphony like in this poem. You know, we're always, uh, and, and that's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. You know, if, if you could be satisfied with something, um, you wouldn't have a soul in the human sense, you know, mm-hmm. see, See, we're, we're, we're infinities inside of us. That comes from the image and likeness of God inside of us. So it, it keeps us perpetually dissatisfied, anxious, longing, yearning. Um, and, um, um, and, and it's it's what drives us. So basically, it's, it's the fire of God inside of us that um, um, draws us out. And it's, it's the basis for all movement. It's interesting, you know, in, in my writings, you know, that isn't just in people, it's in everything. Mm. You know, for instance, if you take the Greek word eros, which we've kind of reduced to sex and so on, but eros just means eroticism. Mm. But you know, that's already in the atoms. Mm. Hydrogen and oxygen get married. <laughs> a child called water. But you know, at the protons, the neutrons, the whole world is yearning. Um, see, so it's not just with people where everything is incomplete that's trying to complete and move out and move out and move out. It's, it's the key to everything, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and um, so when God put us here, God made sure we weren't going to just settle on this planet. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, since I've already used some color, I'll use some further color. You know, I always say, I always told my anthropology students, I said, you know the difference between humans and animals? I said, cattle contentedly munch grass in pastures and human beings discontentedly smoke grass in bars. And that's the difference. (laughs) Cattle haven't got this fire. This Mm. cattle don't have infinity inside of them, but we do. Mm. We do. And so kind of, uh, you're never going to make full peace with this world. You can't, you know, and that's also the best part of you. That's the part of you that's, that's, pushing it to greatness, to love, to universality, ultimately mm. to heaven. Mm-hmm. Yes. I, it's something that I love exploring those tensions, you know, and it, because it's something that's both beautiful and painful at the same time, like most things in life, you know, <laughs> it's like yeah. the greatest joys always have kind of a tinge of sorrow because you know, it's not going to last forever. Yeah, and the yeah. greatest sorrows, you know, sometimes have a tinge of joy because, yeah. you know, you have something to grieve. This means that you loved greatly. <laughs> and it's painful, though, when you recognize that already, but not yet. But I like how you express that. And I think that's one of the things that you see as that motif yeah. in the mystics, you know, yeah. of, of they've tasted something of the divine, and they just want more. And that's what drives a lot of us to seek the contemplative life or get curious about mysticism, because we've mm-hmm. tasted something and it just lights that longing mm-hmm. within us. And we can't stop. Yeah. 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 Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about divine union because divine union is something that mystics talk about. And for those of us on, you know, kind of a contemplative journey, uh, it's something that we might just call the aim of our longing is we want union um, to be one with God, wrapped up with, ravished. You know, there's all these wonderful um, images, especially in the mystics. Um, but I think there's a common misconception about divine union that it means like, kind of like you were saying before, like these ecstasies or levitations or the heights of prayer. Um, But a lot of the mystics and sages and saints talk about the cross as their marriage bed, you know, of of suffering as this place of intimacy. And so I was wondering if you talk a little bit about what divine union is and why would it include suffering? Let's take the first part first, what divine union is. Actually, Kelly, that's, that's more complex than we normally think. See, I, I think that the, the image we have of divine union is that precisely you have some kind of almost semi-ecstatic or ecstatic experience where suddenly 
you're a deep peace and all of a sudden all your longing is gone and you're just a, you have a sense I'm, I'm one with God. Mm -hmm. um, that can happen. But John of the Cross would say that might happen late on in life uh, and, and for a few seconds. Right, if it right. happens, it'll be episodic. It's not, you know, um, in, in this life and so on. But see, union with God is, is, a, is a complex thing, particularly for us as Christians, you know. See, you notice the difference between us as Christians and theists. Like we're theists, but we're also Christians. But see, a Buddhist, a Hindu, a Muslim, a Taoist, you know. See, for them, um, God is up just in heaven. For Christians, God is in heaven and on earth. Mm -hmm. We're the body of Christ mm -hmm. and so on. See, so for instance, for a Christian, if you're having a wonderful meal with your family and you feel very, that's union with God. Mm. <laughs> that's union with Christ, you know? Mm -hmm. See, so that for us, it's also incarnational. You might say, well, this is really nice. It's just our Thanksgiving meal. But, you know, um, no, um, that's union, um, union with God. See, because as Christians, we have God in heaven and God down here. Remember, Paul says, we are the body of Christ on earth. He doesn't say we're like a body or we replace Christ. We are. See, so for a Christian, when you have experience of, of, of human wholeness, mm. of human intimacy of any kind, that's also union with God, mm. you know? Um, and then the, the second, the other part of that, which is, which is really tricky, um, see, um, and I'm still working on this, as is everybody, you know, where somehow you think God is out there and union with God is you somehow have to, you know, uh, but God is more inside of you than you're inside of you. Mm. Like God is part of your very subjectivity so that, you know, that union with God is that's that you make peace with something outside of yourself. It's also going to involve making peace with something inside of yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, um, God is part of our very subjectivity, you know? Mm. Yeah. Uh, but now your second part, the cross, uh, <laughs> that's a good question. It's a difficult question, you know? Um, and usually it has to be sorted out. Let me start with this. So Jesus says, if you become my disciple, pick up your cross, there's going to be pain flowing into your life. Mm -hmm. You know, and you can ask a legitimate question, why? Like, like why would, um, you know, if you love Jesus, pain's going to flow into your life, you know? In fact, I love a line from Daniel Berrigan. Daniel Berrigan says, before you get serious about Jesus, consider very carefully how good you're going to look on wood. Okay. <laughs> I love that line, you know? Mm -hmm. But why? Well, that there's a big misunderstanding. Like we somehow think that if you get close to God, God purifies you through suffering and so on. No, um, the suffering comes this way. Um, the suffering comes, the closer you get to God and to union with God and so on, the more sensitive you're gonna become as a human being. Mm -hmm. And the more sensitive you're gonna become as a human being, the more you're gonna let pain flow into your life, you know? Um, now, you're also going to let deeper joys, you're going to let everything flow more into your life. See, the opposite of that, I have English friends, and they have this expression, I say, this guy is as thick as a plank, you know. Well, see, a plank feels nothing. So, mm. see, it, you know, a plank is totally insensitive. See, so as a human being, I can be as thick as a plank, which means I'm not going to have a lot of suffering in my life. I can drive over a child and go home and have a beer and say, the kid shouldn't have been there, you know. See, but the closer you get to Christ, the more you're going to open yourself up and the more you're going to feel, mm. you're going to feel the cross, the pain, and the, the, and, and the less you're going to protect yourself, you know, mm. you know, incidentally, as an aside, that's what, that's what um, distinguishes the Christ, real Christianity from the gospel of prosperity. See, prosperity gospels, put on Jesus, and you're going to get special breaks. Mm. The real thing, put on Jesus, it's going to sensitize you. And you're going to feel both the deepest pains and joys of this planet, mm. you know, and you're going to be crucified sometimes. And you're, you're also going to stop protecting yourself against pain because normally we know our egos protect us. I'm not going to, I'm not, you know, um, I'm going to always be safe. I'm always going to be comfortable and so on. See, so that mm. pain will flow into your life, you know, yeah. now, you know, the image of the marriage bed, you know, um, that's an important mystical image. And, um, and for them, uh, many of them, like John of the Cross, they used that for their death. See, they, they, um, they always felt this lack of union with God, a lack of union. And they say, see, it's the, we have to not yet, 
you know, but the already, so they, they fantasized your death. That's going to be your wedding night. See that that's going to be the, your, your, your night of complete consummation and so mm -hmm. on. Um, but there's a, a, another mystical image in, in that, that that's drawn out. And that is that the marriage bed <clears throat> is, is also a powerful image for your true home. Mm. A truly, you know, um, even example, when, when I was teaching, uh, used to do some extension courses from secular universities back home. <clears throat> and one year I was teaching this course and a young woman in class was 30 years old, very existential background. And I had the students read a book, <clears throat> excuse me, from um, Christopher De Vink, who's a New Jersey writer. And he wrote a wonderful book way back in the early 90s called, uh, what is it called now? So, um, only the heart knows where to find the precious memories. But anyway, there's a series of essays on his life and him as a young man getting married, having kids and, you know, and not romantic because he's a great writer, but still, but warm. So anyway, this woman comes to hand in her essay and she says, father, she says, uh, that's the best book I've ever read. She said, you know, she said, I grew up with no religious background. She said, no moral instruction. She said, and I have slept my way through two Canadian provinces said, but now I know what I want is what he has. said, I want the marriage bed. I need my sex to take me home. said, mm. I need the marriage bed. See, said, I need that to take me home. So that's also a mystical embassy. The marriage bed, where you're home, you're home, mm. you know? And, mm -hmm. um, and so the mystics use that for when you die, you're coming home. <laughs> that's mm. your real home. It's your ultimate marriage bed. Um, and so they looked forward to their deaths. John the Cross would pray for death <clears throat> and not in a morbid sense. Kind of, this is good, but I'm waiting for something better. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can <clears throat> see how that longing is, um, that's kind of the epitome of that, you know, of um, all of their imagery about, you know, being ravished by the divine. Um, and I also like to think of how, um, you know, marriage is not just sex, like there's so much more to yeah. marriage and mm -hmm. how, like uh, Teresa of Avila would say, holiness is just doing the will of God. Many of the saints and mystics yeah. would say yeah. that. And the will of God is whatever is in your life, you know? Yeah. And so yeah. you don't have to go out and seek suffering, you know, like yeah. beat yourself or fast, you know, in whatever kinds of sacrifices you think you need to make. Um, but really just saying yes to your life, whatever that is, the joys and the sorrows, like you said, be welcoming them and opening yourself to them. And they come in so much more deeply um, as you as you draw closer to that divine union. In fact, I'm glad you said that, Kelly. Someone should never seek suffering, never. That's always unhealthy. No, that's not Christian. You don't seek suffering. Uh, you, you don't protect yourself from it if, it, if you shouldn't, you know. Um, um, but you never seek it. If you seek it, that's morbid. That's wrong. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. um, we don't seek to suffer. Uh, you know, John of the Cross says this too in the mystics. They say, you know, and they say, God doesn't handle people on conveyor belts. In some people's lives, God doesn't give a lot of suffering. And other thing, and John of the Cross said, we know that's the freedom of God. You know, and he said, when there isn't suffering, just be grateful and enjoy the season. <laughs> you know? Uh, yes. Yes, I know. It's, um, <clears throat> Kind of remarkable. I, I thought it was very balanced that I was part of a religious community for a number of years in Rome. And, um, you know, there were different communities that, you know, would sleep on, you know, a bed with boards basically or have fasts yeah. every Friday or, you know, just a variety of penances and sacrifices and such. And um, the community I had been a part of was like, our penance is living a balanced life. There are too many people who like sleep too much or sleep too little, eat too much, eat too little, exercise too, you know, they're like, get balanced and then maybe we could talk about if there's anything else that god's calling you to but just live your life really well <laughs> there's yeah. like enough sacrifice already built in we don't need to you know richard mcbrien the famous theologian Notre Dame, he had this expression i very much like richard mcbrien used to say practice the asceticism of joy mm, I, like that. I like that he said that's maybe the ultimate asceticism asceticism of all the mm -hmm. asceticism of trying to stay happy and mm. he said that that that's real asceticism yeah yeah absolutely yeah uh, 
I don't want to go into this too deeply, but I'm curious then what the role of asceticism is in the spiritual life, because you hear about it in so many spiritual writers, you know, especially in the Christian path, like desert fathers and mothers and, you know, various people along the way. So what is the role of, of asceticism or of sacrifice or however you might define that? Well, well let me give you an example. You know, um, you know, in asceticism, life itself will give you the correct amount of asceticism. I'm going to talk about, you know, proactive asceticism later. And that is, for instance, okay, um, it, it, do you have children? Myself, no. Okay. But imagine a mother has a baby. She's going to have to practice a lot of asceticism in the mm -hmm. next months, getting up at night and so on. And she does it not, for example, I'm going to deprive myself of sleep. No, she just responds, you know. But in all of our lives, if we live our lives honestly, there's going to be plenty, plenty of asceticism. You know, you don't have to pick it, you know, mm -hmm. um, see, so, and, and that's the basic asceticism of life. Mm. Um, you know, there's a interesting, um, uh, I'm sure you're with your, your watchers or participants here. Do you know who Carlo Credo was? Mm. You know, Carlo Credo, the famous Italian writer. Mm -hmm. And, um, and Carlo Credo shares this in one of his books. You know, at one point he was a monk in the Sahara desert for 24 years. Mm. And he lived out there by himself and he prayed and he learned the Bedouin language and translated the Bedouin um, into scriptures into Bedouin and so on. And he prayed all those <clears throat> really thousands of hours. He said he went home to Italy to visit his mother. He said, my mother raised 10 kids and sometimes didn't have, you know, time to go to the bathroom, not alone to pray. He said, and I realized she was more uh, unselfish and more contemplative than I was. Mm. He said... And it didn't mean there's something wrong with what I did in the desert. It meant there's something wonderfully right. All the essentials she's forced to practice as a mother, you know, so that, um, you know, yes. if any of us, whether you're a parent or whatever, if you give yourself over to your work with honesty and so on, there's going to be a lot of asceticism. Mm -hmm. Now, what about Lent and fasting and so on, like, like I would call proactive asceticism? Um, well, you know, I always tell people, when you do that, get spiritual direction mm. you know, um, to make sure. Um, so sometimes you can proactively put heat to your spiritual life. So, you know, you might have a seat say, you know, I, I think I'm, I'm getting too comfortable or too complacent or whatever. And so I need to lay a little heat on here. I need some desert time or whatever. Mm. See, so you might do things like that. Um, and, and they might be very... Um, you know, specifically related. Somebody say, I got a weight problem. I really got to look at the food thing in my life, you know, mm -hmm. or, or I have a TV addiction or I have an addiction to the internet or something. I need to look at that, you know. Um, but see, you do that for a specific reason, you know. Um, but those aren't the major transformative asceticisms of your life. Mm -hmm. The major transformative asceticism is built into your life. That if, if you give yourself over, you know, they're going to take you yes. <laughs> at a certain point. They're going to take every ounce of energy you have and so on. And it'll lead you to sanctity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I feel like that ties in <clears throat> nicely with um, just the life of virtue, which I, I feel like is something that we don't talk about enough because in a lot of contemplative circles, <clears throat> we'll talk about this pairing of the contemplative and the active and how important those are to have together. But I think um, many of us just assume that the active life is like, social activism, you know, or social justice or something, which could be part of it. But I think when a lot of the saints and spiritual writers write about that, about the active life, it's more the life of virtue, you know, it's not necessarily or only taking care of the poor and being anti-racist and all of those things, but it's also working on those things like, do I have a weight problem? Am I gossiping too much under the guise of like asking people to pray for my friend, <laughs> you know, or yeah, sure. what are my faults that I'm regularly f tripping up and falling into? Um, and I, I'm curious, um, how, does, how does virtue help us on the way to divine union? Okay, that's a pretty theoretical question. You know, <laughs> you've got me back in a classroom. Yes. How does virtue, rephrase that for me again, phrase it for me. How, how does, does virtue help us on the way to divine union or what role does it play? Well, um, I'm going to give you a simplistic answer. We need to be teased out, you know. Sure. Um, you know, 
classical medieval philosopher says you have to the the head follows the, the heart follows the head so you have to think your way into something new mm. but more and more today people say you can act your way into a new way of thinking mm. you can you, you you can act your way into transformation mm. see so um so that see what virtue can do for you by doing the right things eventually you'll become the right kind of person if i can and I hope that's not too simplistically phrased, you know, mm-hmm. as opposed to first you think what's the right kind of person to become, then you you try to act yourself into it. See, this reverses it. It's probably more that what I, the way I do spiritual exercise, sometimes act yourself into it. Mm. <laughs> like act yourself into a new way of thinking and a new way of being. Do the right things, you know, even if at the time they're forced and so on. Uh, your heart isn't there. Eventually, uh, you you get there. You know, yeah. as opposed to first of all, you perfectly think out what should I become, what exercise I do to transform myself. Sometimes just do the right thing. Just do virtuous acts, and if eventually you'll become a virtuous person. Yeah. You know, act I yourself like into a, a new person. Mm-hmm. And really just thinking of it as doing the right thing in any given circumstance, not that I need to like sit down and have my program kind of like, um, I think it was Benjamin Franklin who would sit down and he's like, here are my virtues and here's what I'm going to work on, you know, each day. And he kind of plotted it out and had a chart and a whole graph and, you know, like he's very methodical about it, which cool, good for him. But I think like we've been saying all along, life will give you the right amount of asceticism. Life will give you opportunities to grow in virtue. So you don't necessarily need to sit and think like, how do I be more courageous, you know, but to recognize that, oh, maybe I need to have the courage to have that really difficult conversation with somebody at work because they've been continually interrupting me every time we get into like a big meeting and I'm sick of it. And instead of stewing and resenting, Maybe I just need to like point it out and say, hey, I don't know if you realize you're doing this, but um, every time I speak, <laughs> I get interrupted and we need to figure out how to do this differently. You know, a lot of us don't think of that as like, that's my that's my path. That's where I need to grow in virtue. But I feel like those very simple things are, are the opportunities that life gives us. Yeah. Um, one more question on on the role of suffering um how in the christian understanding do we turn suffering into a prayer how would you explain that it's a very good question and actually that's not a hard question to answer because paul mm-hmm. gave us the answer you know remember saint paul says when i when i don't know how to pray then the Holy Spirit in groans that are too deep for words praise mm. through me. See, so that, for instance, when you're groaning and suffering and so on, um, mm. that is a prayer. And I, I hope your audience aren't going to be scandalized. If sometimes the difference between swearing and praying is there's no difference. I'm like, mm. God, why is this happening to me? And so on. That's a prayer. That's your body. That's your inside responding, you know. So when St. Paul says, um, when I don't know how to pray, then the Holy Spirit in groans that are too deep for words, you know, um, prays through me. So sometimes we just say, Jesus Christ, you know, is that a swear word or is it a prayer? Yeah, (laughs) that's a really good point. I mean, because I think frequently people feel guilty, like, oh, I shouldn't be angry at God or I shouldn't curse the heavens or something. But it's like... Uh, that's actually quite scriptural. Have you read the Psalms? <laughs> you know, like... Yeah, and you know, see, see, sometimes your body, your soul, it's just reacting. You, you, when, when you groan, you know that you groan under pain. That's a prayer. Mm. That is prayer. Like you don't have to turn that into prayer. You don't say, well, like I was suffering, and now I'm going to pray about it, and so on. That, I mean, you can do that secondarily, as you know, a secondary movement. But just the groaning itself, mm. the groan. Oh my God, why is this happening to me, and so on. That is the prayer, you know, mm. just keep repeating. When I don't know how to pray, the Holy Spirit in, in groans that are too deep for words, yes. you know, or sometimes they're not even any words. You're just, you're just down. You say, how can this all be happening to me? And so on. Uh, mm-hmm. That is the prayer. Yes, yeah. I love that. Because remember, me... oh, go ahead. Kelly, the oldest definition of prayer, and it's still one of the best ones ever, is that prayer is lifting mind and heart to God. Mm. So we're not just lifting praise, 
and thanksgiving, you're also lifting pain and bitterness and anger and so on. Um, you know, it's it's every movement inside of us, every emotion, uh, every reaction is a is an opening to prayer potentially. Yes, yes, and it doesn't have to use words. It's yeah. it's really just yeah. that that gesture of lifting, of offering, of um, whatever that interior movement is. And sometimes yeah. when we're so verbal, we we forget yeah. that that <laughs> that that counts. You know that that is yeah, yeah. Um, part of it. Um, so that I know this is terrible. You say we, we say Jesus' name sometimes in reverence and sometimes not in reverence, <laughs> but you're you're still invoking God and Jesus. You know. Mm, uh, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, yeah, it reminds me of um, Therese of Lisieux's definition, you know, a surge of the heart, like yeah. um, cry towards heaven. That's a lovely and simple definition of what that is. Um, one other question that I have been um, wanting to ask is, well, maybe I'll put this in two parts. I want to know the holiest person you've ever met and what surprised you about them, whether that was early on in life or, you know, something later. Um, and then the second part of the question will be, who is someone who is deceased, who you find, you know, either the holiest person or someone that really speaks to you, whether it's a mystic or a writer or something else. So alive and deceased. You know, you had sent me a list of questions about that. And that, that one really stumped me, <clears throat> but in, in, a, in a good way. Because I thought it was, and so I, I thought, I'm going to rephrase that. Um, I mean, I'm going to, it might not say, because normally when we think of holiness, we think of like, obviously the mother Teresa's, the, you know, the, the overt figures of holiness and so on. Um, but I, I want to, I, I would ask myself the question this way, who would I want to be across the table from, for, from all eternity? Mm. Like, would it want to be mother Teresa or like, who, who would I want to be sitting beside mm. at the banquet table? Who would I want to spend eternity with, you know, and that put it differently, you know? Uh, would give you a different series of questions. You know, see, see. So for me, you know, I grew up, and maybe you grew up the same way, where holiness always meant they're set apart. You know, mm -hmm. it's, you, you immediately think of Mother Teresa. You immediately think of some saint, somebody knows. Um, you know, and I don't doubt they're holy. You know, um, so if you say to me, "Who's the holiest person you've ever met um, alive?" You know, um, well, I thought of two people: a man and a woman. And, and the man I thought of is actually a superior general in Rome. Louis, Logan. Um, hmm. Louis is the most unassuming, human, <laughs> gracious, open. Uh, um, you know, Louis has no faults. You know, but but when he 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 doesn't look like Mother Teresa. <laughs> he looks very human, and um, you know, you'd always want to sit beside him at the table. You know, hmm. um, and he never puts people down. He doesn't gossip. His sense of humor is very simple, living man, and so on. Um, very bright, but doesn't know it, you know, that's kind of, you know, um, you know, but he's just, he's a happy person. Mm. Um, and then there's a woman I know in, in Edmonton who have good family friends who actually had a tragic background, you know, um, when she was a young girl in England, she was raped and beaten that she spent a year in a hospital recovering. And today she's probably the happiest person I know. She's wow. married, kids, grandmother, but the same thing, there's just there's just a warmth and a graciousness, a sense of humor, uh, you know, an openness, like um, uh, lots of laughter, you know, lots of warmth, deep spiritually, you know. Mm. Uh, see, so I guess I posed it up. Who would I want to be across the table from? Yes. For a long, long time, you know. Um, and and no offense to Mother Teresa. I, I'd like to say hello to Mother Teresa and go to a different table. <laughs> <laughs> If you know what I mean, to her and yep, move yeah, right yeah, along. Yep. <laughs> kind of, you know, no doubt she's holy, but um, you know, it was that was a good question because it got me thinking. You know, um, I also yes. thought of my dad. My dad was a wonderful man, um, and um, maybe the most moral man I ever met. But you know, he, um, but um, and, and you know, I wouldn't mind spending eternity with my dad. But my my, and my dad was more stoic. You know, mm -hmm. um, we used to tease him. We said he. His, his only excess is moderation. But so that, that's a good question. And, you know, because um, and, and keep asking people that because I think immediately you think holy, you think of the Mother Teresa's and so on. I thought I'm going to rephrase that yes. for myself. Like, who do I want to sit beside for all eternity um, at a table? I want to yes. say hello to Mother Teresa. 
but I, I want to go to a different table. Yes. Unless the donor are well enough. I love those, um, maybe not criteria, but at least qualities that you name of, you. of a holy person or a contemplative person, kind of like um, Carlo's mother, you know, where it's like, oh, yeah. who who's the person who is being unselfish, but, you know, naming out warmth, a sense of humor, um, just kind of a unassuming nature, like they're just yeah. very much themselves, you know, and I remember- yeah. And you're completely comfortable with, you're always completely comfortable with. You know? Yes, yes. And I love that because it, it makes holiness not something, again, set apart or out there, like, oh, to be this great yeah. contemplative means that you have to spend hours a day in silence and you're kind of somber, you know, in your <laughs> demeanor. Like, you know, I think an over-seriousness it can also be a sign of like, oh, maybe they take themselves a little, a little too seriously. Yeah. And that's something that, you know, might be a fault. I don't know. It depends on the person, yeah. but um, recognizing that there is a very, um, I don't know, great sense of ease about people who, who are spiritually mature rather than any kind of pretentiousness or, um, yeah, kind of set apartness that I can't quite reach. Yeah. So, yeah, I like that. Um, who that was a good question. That was yeah, a really good. good. Question. <laughs> How about deceased? Who would you say are one or two of the most important figures in your own spirituality? Well, you know, it's it's interesting. Well, you know, you, you have the greats. You know, so that for instance, I've been deeply influenced by John of the Cross. Mm -hmm. Been very deeply influenced by Teresa of Lisieux. Those are my two favorite, like mm. classical mystics. And then going back earlier, Saint Augustine. So probably the mm. three great historical figures: Augustine, John of the Cross, Teresa of Lisieux. Uh, somewhat by by Julian of Norwich, although I haven't read her as closely, and so on. But just more closer to home. In fact, I just thought the other day I want to write an article on this. You know, uh, um, who are my contemporary saints? I want to name three of them. Mm. You know, um, one of them is Henry Nouwen. You know, Henry, not, I, I knew Henry, but I knew his life. Henry was this complex, complex, complex man. You know, Henry was a, a crisis looking to happen, but deeply sincere, always in a crisis, mm. loving and a mystic, you know. Mm. Um, but, but life was never easy for him. But somehow he showed, I could pull this off in all mm. this complexity, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, he has deeply influenced me and he, you know, there's rarely a, a day goes by I don't refer to him or quote him in some way and mm. so on. Um, the second one is is a, a man and you, you're familiar with Daniel Berrigan. Mm. You know, <laughs> Daniel Berrigan, you know, this, um, well, his thing to the poor, but beyond that, he was an incredible poet and writer. As mm. a young man, he's like, God, I was envious of his talent, you know. But also Daniel Berrigan was the first person who for who, who, who could make a poetry out of celibacy and loneliness, mm. you know, where I thought, you know, God, you know, he, there, there's, there's something uh, he, he, to, to be kind of a lonely prophet and so on. I thought he, he could put some, some, uh, uh, but I just admired his, his, um, what he did and so mm. on, his wisdom, his great sense of humor and so on. And the last one, I don't know if you have heard of her, she just died two years ago, very young, is um, Rachel Held Evans. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. She was an evangelical writer who died at age 37. Um, I mean, I, <laughs> she's in my prayers every day. Um, she's this young woman who just, she, she was kind of the treasure of Lisieux of our time, you know, mm. um, writing a different. So for, if you take, for instance, a couple of her books in, in search of Sundays, that could be today's story of you know the story of a soul you know mm. um you know see in, in in all three of them there there was a powerful humanity and a powerful faith that um you know um that um th th there were three faith-filled people you know um none of whom had an easy life <laughs> mm -hmm. each of them kind of modeled sanctity for sanctity for today you know um you know, with Berrigan, I, you know, I never met Berrigan, um, but in, and maybe I was just blown away sometimes by his poetry and his idealism and so on. Um, but, you know, what, what, I had a priest friend who himself got shot to death uh, in Guatemala, um, one of our oblates, Larry Rosebaugh, but he went to prison a couple of times to the Berrigans, you know, and he'd tell me a lot of stories about Daniel. Um, 
He said before they would do an act, they would pray the whole night. So that in the morning, they would get up and they'd, they'd say mass. And they'd put in their mass vestments. And they'd walk across to do this act to burn draft files. And Daniel always say, he said, Larry, if you can't do this without getting angry and bitter at the people who arrest you, don't do it. He said, the only another angry man. You know, there was, a, there was also a deep kind of a sanctity to him and so mm. on. And, and, he, and his nonviolence and so on. Mm. I've also been influenced by Dorothy Day. I'm doing more and more reading on Dorothy Day, but um, I didn't have as much natural affinity to Dorothy Day as I do to Berrigan now. And, and now when I met a couple of times, and, um, but some, we have so many mutual friends that I just know all of Henry's struggles, which mm. are massive. But he was a saint in progress, but he always stayed with it. Um, and so he was this complex, in some ways, tortured man who wrote these incredible books, mm. but died in, died in fidelity. Yes, I, I love... I love the contemporary examples because we do get more of that complexity. I think a lot of the ones who are, you know, from hundreds of years ago, we have them only through filters and, you know, yeah, writings yeah. and kind of get the hagiography of like, oh, they just like had the perfume of sanctity since they were an infant, you know, and you're like, oh, okay, well, that's not me. Um, but to find the people who are more complex, I mean, I love that about Therese as well. I mean, that she... <laughs> I, she was my confirmation saint. I let, like I read her story of a soul when I was 14. And I remember being so offended in my religious community. The first time I heard somebody say like, you know, she was kind of psychotic, right? <laughs> you know? I was like, I felt so offended. But then it, eventually I came around to like, actually that gives me hope. You know, if, if Therese struggled with psychoses, then there's hope for all of us, you know, because we've all got our psychoses and kind of, um, well, you know, one, one of the things I really like about Therese, because it took me a while to like her, because you know, if you just, if you read her superficially, she can come across, and plus piety has kind of encrusted her with so much piety. Mm -hmm. But when you read her, you know, there, there's an incredible complexity to this person. You know, mm -hmm. for instance, she's always the pious little girl, and she's also Sophia. You know, mm -hmm. uh, you know and there, there is a, uh, a little girl in her begging for affection. And there's also like, she's always the opposite of all of that, you know, and the same with Henry now, you yes. know, they're, they're just, they're, they're, they're really complex, you know, and so that their life wasn't simple, like Therese, it wasn't so simple as they made it sound and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, but you no, know, now she, she, she's my mystic, you know, mm -hmm. um, I'll tell you a quick story on her, just not, not on her, but, you know, uh, um, the story of a soul, and I try to reread it maybe every two or three years. There aren't a lot of books I reread. And, uh, but some years ago, I had a psychologist friend who was really a crack psychologist on the West Coast. And, um, and he was dying, we were the same age. He was dying at age 53, and he was dying of cancer, you know? And uh, people bring him books to read, and he couldn't read. At one point he said, the only thing I can still read when I'm dying is Trezor Flizio. Hmm. He said, you know, she cuts away all the crap. <laughs> he said, when, when you're dying, you know, there's a lot of literature makes sense to you you know mm -hmm. said there was the one book he kept you know wow. and he wasn't a particular religious man it's mm -hmm. just um, um i was really struck by it. i said that's the one book i can still read yes you know, it grounds me hmm. you know? yeah i love that and there is such great simplicity in her um yeah in our in our women mystic school which both of us will be speaking at i'll be doing therese on on her feast day on oh, october great. 1st um, and then well, we have... uh, make sure you send me the link because I want I want to listen to that. Yes, know? yes, absolutely. I will do that. Um, and we have you speaking about Ruth Burroughs um, coming up here in September. And I'm curious um, for those who have never heard of Ruth, what would be you know a couple sentences that you would say like why she is an important mystic um, amongst all of these greats? Why why should people know about Ruth? A couple of things. Um, first of all, she's a Carmelite. Mm -hmm. And it is the contemporary Carmelite author. Ruth just turned 99. Okay. Yeah. She's, um, that's one incredible thing that she's still alive. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and, um, um, but she, she's a true mystic. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe I'll just give you, again, because we've been talking about this all afternoon here. Um, you know, I first got interested in her. I was in a bookstore, didn't know who she was, picked up her autobiography. And these were the first lines I thought, I'm going to read this. 
She says, I was born into this life with a tortured sensitivity and my life has been a struggle. I thought, mm. notice that I wasn't serene. I says, I was born. <laughs> and mm -hmm. so she tells her story and she became this great mystic, but notice that I was born into this life with a tortured sensitivity. Uh, uh, I twice went to see her in England. One time did a retreat on her and she's just this incredibly uh, deep, but, but marvelous woman. Mm -hmm. um, some of your viewers may know Wendy Beckett, the art mm -hmm. critic. Mm -hmm. Sister, see, she lived with uh, Ruth Burroughs' monastery, mm. uh, and is one of the, the the the. And she was a mystic too. She she was one of the people that they they, they did mystical writings together and uh, collaborated on and mm. so on. And um, Orbis Press is just coming out with a with a huge book of letters of Sister Wendy and uh, uh, Wendy Lovely. Beckett, the, the art critic. Um, but, but Ruth is, um, she's a contemporary mystic. She's still alive. Um, um, and there's a clarity in her. Um, she can actually be difficult to read sometimes. She's not a, an easy, she's a straight shooter. You know, you, you mentioned that people said they found Teresa of you psychotic. This is Ruth's thing on Teresa of Avila. So Teresa of Avila said, was one of the most neurotic women who ever lived. She said, she was the same, but among other things that may interest you, she did a photographic study of Teresa of Lisieux. Because remember, we have hundreds of pictures of Teresa of Lisieux, you know. Mm -hmm. And Ruth did a photographic study of that. And she, she came up with this, she says, you know, when you look at Teresa of Lisieux and all the photographs, individual or with a group, says she's always deeply alone. Hmm. There's an aloneness to her that um, even when she's in a photograph, and, and when she wasn't community, she was one of the most communitarian of all the nuns. But she, hmm. you look at her photographs, she's always deeply, deeply alone. Hmm. Um, see, so she's a contemporary Carmelite. Look at the Carmelite tradition, but she also writes her own mysticism. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to learning more about her because I know I've heard people talking about Ruth Burroughs, like in some of the circles of like, Center for Action and Contemplation, and other people are slowly discovering her works. And so I'm, I'm excited to be able to share her with a wider audience. I think that'll be quite wonderful. I hope she's still alive in September, so. I do too. Um, we are almost on time here, but before we wrap up today, um, Ron, if people want to learn more about you and your books and what you're up to, where should they go? Well, I have a website. If you just go to, to uh, Google and type in ronrollheiser.com and you, more stuff's going to come up than you ever you want to know about and so on. <laughs> yeah. But you know, I've been writing a newspaper column for more than 40 years or 40 and it's uh, exactly 40 years this year. Wow. And you know, there's a, there's an archives on there, different articles, books, uh, um, and as well, the, the, you know, and you've met Joanne, there's mm -hmm. a, there's a, a full-time person that's running all of this and she can, she does Facebook and where I am at and so on. So, um, wonderful. Keeps tabs on you. Yeah. <laughs> That's excellent. And if anyone listening wants to join us for women mystics, whether for Ruth Burroughs or Therese or any of the classes that we're having, we're having a once a month um, class on a different female mystic. And you can find out more about that at womenmystics.org. I think I'm, I'm very excited for the, for the okay. upcoming classes. So I can't wait to hear and learn more about Ruth. So, Ron, thank you so much for joining us today and entertaining all of our questions and um, wanderings into mysticism and divine union. It's been a delight. Well, I'm going to have to ask you sometime who, who is you, the holiest person you've ever met and why? You know, oh, so. yes. I'm going to have to think about that. I need to think about the questions that I pose to other people so that I'm prepared to answer them in return. Um, but I, I would probably respond with qualities that are quite similar, like people who are very grounded and down to earth. And I can think of um, a few people, um, a good friend who's a mother, um, a friend who is in the religious community I was with over in Rome, um, who are just very simple, grounded, have a great sense of humor and are very good at being present. I think that's- Thanks, Kelly.
joining us on Spiritual Wanderlust. If you enjoyed today's episode, consider leaving us a review or sharing it with others. It really does help us reach more kindred spirits who are hungry for the depths. To learn more about what we're up to, or to access our free resources for spiritual growth, visit us at www.spiritualwanderlust.org. May your days ahead be spacious, sprightly, and surprising. See you next time.